I'm really excited um, to get into the Word, but before we do, <clears throat> really want to touch on that manhood journey. Manhood is something that's not just culturally something that we need to pay attention to, but biblically something we need to pay attention to. And this manhood journey is something that is essential for men in our church. If you're not in a mentor-mentee relationship, if you're not in a discipleship relationship, if we're not focusing on what does it mean to be a biblical, God-fearing man in the church, we can't expect to be biblical, God-fearing men in the world. And there's almost an epidemic within the pandemic of manhood within our country. And we need to address that. And I think the best way that we can address that, and the most easy way for us to address it, is that it showed up right here on your front door. That if you're a man in this room, you don't even have to go and do much now. Now it has come to you. So now we're asking if you have anything on the inside of your heart that you feel like is necessary for you to say yes to this journey, we want to encourage you, say yes to this journey. Say yes to the be a man journey. Say yes to growing in relationship with God and with other men and finding that band of brothers, those men and, 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 and mentors who can disciple you in the faith because it's going to really help us, help our church and help our country. Amen? Amen. Well, my name is Tellus Fuller. I'm the youth pastor here on staff at Grace Covenant Church, and I'm super excited to be able to share the word with us this morning. We're going to be in Philippians chapter 3, Philippians chapter 3, verse uh, 12 through 14. And I'm really, really excited to share this message, message with you because I think that no matter where you're at, that this can apply to you. And can apply to us in any and every season of our lives. So in, uh, in Philippians chapter 3, verse 12 through 14, it says this. Not that I have already obtained this, or am already perfect, but I press on to make it my own, because Christ Jesus has made me his own. Brothers, I do not consider that I have made it my own, but one thing I do. Forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead. Verse 14. I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. What I want to title this message is After the Yes. After the Yes. Will you pray with me real quick? Father, we love you so much. God, we're asking and inviting the Holy Spirit to be in this place. We know you said where two or more are gathered, you will be in the middle of them. So Lord, we welcome you in this place. Open our eyes and our ears to see and hear everything that you want us to. God, we make ourselves available for you this morning, asking that you would do something special right now. Father, we love you so much. And more importantly, you love us. Holy Spirit, would you empower us to live, look, and love more like Jesus today than we did yesterday. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. The longer I live, the more I realize one thing. The more I realize is that Christianity is not just a one-time yes to Jesus, but a lifelong yes to Jesus. Now, that might be surprising for some of us in the room, or maybe not. Maybe we've been to the altar call, we've had the goosebumps, we went to the camp, we uh, prayed the prayer, we got the shirt, we got the ticket, and now we're going to heaven forever. And we have this moment that we can remember of giving our lives to Jesus, but 
I want to encourage us through these next, this next half hour of what does it mean after the yes to Jesus? What happens after we've said yes to God? Because I believe that there is more yeses to be had in our lives than just simply salvation. But there's a lifelong journey of saying yes to Jesus every single day. And some of us leave some yeses on the cutting room floor. And what I'm not saying is that saying yes to God wasn't enough in salvation. I'm not saying a works-based faith in where we need to say yes to make sure that we stay saved. No, I'm saying that the, the, the sacrifice of Jesus was enough. It was enough. And now we are being formed into the image of Christ every day through our yes. That there is a formation that needs to happen after we have been saved. Sanctification, that we are supposed to live, look, and love more like Jesus today than we did yesterday. And even though I am saved going to heaven, there is a formation that needs to happen in myself to be more like Christ today than I was yesterday. There's something after the yes. There's a old nature and a new nature. The new nature is this new man that we've been given in Christ Jesus that's constantly fighting against our old nature. Now, I wish that once we got saved, all of our bad desires and bad thoughts and selfish ambitions and pride and, and things that we wanted to exalt ourselves and push other people down, I wish that that went away. But if we're being honest, they usually don't, right? I mean, to be honest, it's actually countercultural to deny yourself in the world. It actually goes against what the world asks us to do. The world's saying, if, if you feel it, then you should do it. If you love it, then you should love it. If, if, if you feel it, if you want it, then you should take it. It's actually a form of denying yourself in the world if you don't do what you feel like you want to do. And it's countercultural because in the kingdom, we're supposed to deny ourselves. And in the world, we're encouraged to actually accept ourselves, to do whatever we feel. And we're actually discouraged to deny ourselves. What I've realized is that many of us are content with being found in Christ, but not formed into Christ. I'm very happy Jesus found me. I'm very thankful that I'm saved. I'm so happy I'm going to heaven. But we're hesitant to be formed into the image of Christ on a daily basis which requires sacrifice, which is going to require a constant form of discipleship. Maybe that's the manhood journey, that push that you need to be formed into the image of Christ. Where we see Paul here is that Paul, even though he was the foremost of the apostles, he counted himself as the least of the apostles. And Paul, in this, in, and we see in his, throughout his life, specifically here, that he was actually looking forward to another level in Jesus. And when we see that in Paul, we might say, Paul, the guy who preached to the Gentiles, Paul, the guy who wrote two-thirds of the New Testament, Paul, the guy who was whipped and beaten, the Paul, the guy who was stoned, Paul, the guy who had the amazing convert. Yes, that Paul says that he's straining towards the upward call, that there's something else even after he's given his yes to God. And I don't think that Paul was outstandingly different than the rest of us. And I think that Paul was just relentlessly faithful. That there was a, a call that God had on Paul's life and Paul just kept saying yes. Real simply, Paul just was faithful to whatever God asked him to do. 
And Paul knew that a yes to God is a yes to all of God. You know that, right? That we can't just get the Bible and say, I like certain parts of this that make me feel good. I like the parts where I receive grace and mercy. And I like the parts where, where God died for me when I was a sinner. And, and I like the parts where, where God unconditionally loves me. And I like all those parts, but we kind of disregard the parts where it says that we're supposed to be generous beyond our comfort zone. Or, or we disregard the part where it says that actually faith isn't, isn't from the eyes, but we don't walk by sight, but we walk by faith. I, we don't like the parts where it says that we're actually supposed to love those that persecute us. We, 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 we all of a sudden make the scriptures like a buffet of what we want out of our spiritual experience with Jesus. And we say, I want this part and this part and this part, but no vegetables, thank you, <laughs> right? We say, I'll take the good parts that I've, and, and Paul knew something special. He knew that a yes to God is a yes to all of God and that there was no conditions, that I am following Jesus wherever that leads. Paul said it like this specifically in 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 2. For I have decided to know nothing among you except for Jesus Christ and him crucified. That's Paul's mentality. That I have decided that I will know nothing except for Christ and him crucified. Now, Paul had things to know. Paul, we see in Philippians that he was a Jew of all Jews. Paul, we see in Philippians that he was beyond his years in terms of his peers, that he was zealous, that he was actually a successful Jew. People wanted to be like he was. He was really good at what he did. And Paul still says, I have actually decided to know nothing except for the main thing. Why? Because Paul knew that it's really difficult to say yes to God when you're saying yes to yourself. <laughs> and Paul knew that he had a lot to say yes to in himself. He had a lot of accomplishments. He had a lot of accolades. He had a lot of, of things that other people wanted. He, he might have had the lifestyle that people envied in his circles around him. And yet he chose to say no to himself and yes to God. It's interesting because the more that Paul had, the more that Paul had to say no to. That he had a lot of accolades. He had a lot of accomplishments. And in the middle of that, he said, I've decided to not know any of this, to accept none of this and to only receive and pursue Christ and him crucified. Paul had a clear message. No matter where you read in the scriptures, Paul's message was clear. Christ and him crucified. Every yes has a no attached to it. And every no has a yes attached to it. Really simply, every yes has a no attached to it, and every no has a yes attached to it. LeBron James most famous basketball player of all time. One of them, right? Don't debate me. You can say Michael Jordan, but whatever, right? We can say one of the most famous basketball players of all time. He, when he was coming out of high school during this time, he actually didn't need to go to a, a, a university, the college. During this time, he could go straight from high school straight to the NBA. And what happened is that when he was around 17, 18 years old, he got approached because he was one of the most highly sought after prospects in all of basketball and, in history. So he gets approached by all these different people, and one person that approached him specifically was Reebok. Now, Reebok approaches LeBron when he's 17, 18 years old and say, hey, we have a deal for you. Now, LeBron had not played one play. He's still in high school, had not played one play in the NBA. And Reebok comes to him. The CEO of Reebok goes to LeBron and says, okay, I can give you a check, strokes a check for $10 million 
slides it across the table to this 18-year-old kid and says, I'll give you $10 million to sign with Reebok right now. You don't have to do anything. Now, the craziest part is that LeBron grew up in Akron, Ohio, where I'm not sure if this is hyperbole or not, but in an interview, he said that it was really, really enticing to take that check because rent with my mom was only $17 a month. He said, this could change my life. This could change my mom's life forever. I could go back to school. I could brag to all my friends. Yo, I just got a 10 million off bat. Like, I didn't have to do anything. And he's considering the option, and he sees Reebok, and Reebok slides this check across the table to him. And the only thing that Reebok says is, if you take this $10 million right now, our only condition is that you cannot even talk, look to, or smell Nike or Adidas. <laughs> that, was their, that was their condition. You're not even allowed to talk to them. Don't talk to Nike or Adidas, and we will give you $10 million right now. LeBron considers this option and says, okay, if Reebok is going to give me $10 million, then that means Nike is probably going to give me way more than that, right? LeBron says no to this offer. And what happens is that soon after he says no to this offer, what happens is that Nike approaches LeBron before he's played a single play in the NBA. Nike strokes him a check for $90 million. And he says yes to Nike. <laughs> like all of us would. <laughs> what do I find here is that every no has a yes attached to it and every yes has a no attached to it. That when we say no to one thing, we're saying yes to something else. And when we say yes to one thing, we're saying no to something else. This isn't new. I mean, when you get married, you're saying yes to one person for the rest of your life, and inherently you're saying no to everybody else. When you go to a university, you're saying yes to one university and no to every other university. When you take a job, you're saying yes to one job and no to every other job. When you go to Chick-fil-A, you're saying yes to a number one and no to a number four, unless you're really hungry, right? But you're saying, you're saying yes to one thing and no to something else. Paul knew that there was a decision to be made. And what I've realized in the kingdom is that when you look at the scripture, and even now when you look at us in real life, there are only two people in this world. There are people who say yes to God and people who say no to God. There are people who say yes to the world and people who say no to the world. When we look at the scriptures, we see inherently in Paul is someone who was saying yes to God. And every time you say yes, to what God has, you're saying no to what the world has. If you're me, right? I'm selfish. <laughs> I'm prideful. I want what I want. And so more often than not, as much as I don't want to admit it, if I'm saying yes to God, I'm usually saying no to myself. Because what I want inherently isn't usually what God wants. Which means that I'm going to have to deny myself. I'm going to have to say no to me in order to say yes to God. And when we say yes to God in faith, yes to the kingdom, that is a holy no to the world. And we find ourselves choosing God over man. Paul was in a special position and he gave God this special amen. And God gave Paul a special adventure. It was an amazing relationship that Jesus had with Paul where he called him out. You remember Paul's story where he was actually persecuting Christians? He was actually against Christ. 
And what happens is that as he's on this road to do more bad things, more persecute more Christians, he's on this road to Damascus. What happens is that God comes up to him, shines us this bright light, knocks him off of his donkey. His eyes go blind, scales on his eyes. And Jesus says to him, you're persecuting me. It's me who you're persecuting. Paul has, his name is Saul at this point, has this amazing revelation. He sees Jesus and then goes away. Then Jesus appears to Ananias and Ananias is saying, he goes to Ananias and says, hey, remember that guy Saul? I just pretty much encountered him. Go and now teach him everything that he's doing and heal him from his blindness. Ananias is like, who? who? The guy who, who hates us? put us in jail and killed my friend. I don't really want to do that. Like, he's not a good guy. And, 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 and I says yes, and he eventually goes over to Saul and, and explains the scriptures, heals him, scales fall from his eyes, and he can see again spiritually and literally. And all of the sudden, Paul actually gets, Saul gets his name changed to Paul and becomes one of the foremost apostles. Paul knew and had this inherent and, 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 and intimate experience with Jesus where he said no to the world after an encounter with God and said yes to Jesus. And I don't want to just make it all about our yes and our no because what I see in the scriptures and when we see in the gospel, honestly, is this, is that the gospel is Jesus saying yes to us despite our no to him. Because it can easily turn into, oh, it's all about me. I have to say yes. I have to say yes. And, and yes, there's a partnership to receiving, surrendering your life to God. But the gospel, some good news, is that Jesus said yes to you despite your no to him. Let me prove it to you. It says in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 1 through 5, it says this. And you who were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of of the world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the, in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the evil desires of the body and of the mind. And we were by nature children of wrath, just like the rest of mankind. That is probably the most discouraging runoff sentence in the whole Bible. I'm like, Paul, slow down and stop because you're hurting my feelings. Because some of us see that and we're like, children of wrath? I wasn't that bad. Like, I wasn't that bad before Christ. No, we were that bad before Christ. This was our no to Jesus. That we were, it, it wasn't just that we did bad things. We were bad inherently there was something wrong inside of us that we could not change by any amount of generosity any amount of morality any amount of right giving or or sacrificial living there was nothing we could do but i'm so happy that the scripture doesn't stop there it says but god but god being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us. Also, fun fact, this is the only time in the New Testament it says with the great love with which God loved us. With the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. It is by grace that you have been saved. This is the gospel. That Jesus said yes to you despite your no to him. 
that even when you were dead in your trespasses, there was a God who came from heaven to earth and died by grace. You have been saved. That means it is the unmerited, unearned favor of God on your life that he has given you something that you could not earn or deserve. Even when you were dead, Jesus paid for a dead thing and made it alive. That's the gospel. That there is a no that we gave him and a yes that he gave us. The cross of Jesus Christ is a call to himself. And that's the gospel. That was Jesus's yes to us. And sometimes when we see a call to come like that, we think it stops there. But there is something after the yes. One thing I think that we've gotten away from in the church is that we've separated a call to come to Jesus and a call to catch for Jesus. That there is an inherent marriage between coming to Jesus and catching for Jesus. It says it this in Matthew chapter 4. While walking by the Sea of Galilee, he, Jesus, saw two brothers, Simon, who is called Peter, and his brother Andrew, and casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. And he said to them, follow me, and I will make you fishers of men. Immediately they left their nets and followed him. Did you see it? That in one breath, Jesus says, follow me and catch for me. I know you're fishermen, but I will make you fishers of men. There is inherently in the call of Jesus a mission to catch for Jesus. There is a second yes that's not just Jesus welcomes us and now we do whatever we want. But we have been drafted into the kingdom of God to work and to actually catch for God. And he invited us into this relationship that says it's not just about one yes saying, oh God, I've said yes to you and now my life is going to be perfect and now I can just rest in this and now I don't have to do anything else. And I'm not talking about a workspace face. I'm talking about a commissioning that Jesus gave to his people. And his people, what he's saying is that there is something inherent in coming to me that is also you catching for me. A call to come cannot be separated from a call to catch. And that means that we have an inherent yes to say to Jesus every single day. Why do I say that? Because saying yes to Jesus is saying yes to all of Jesus. And saying yes to Jesus is saying yes to the mission of Jesus. That there's a mission that we have said yes to. And we, if you look in the scriptures, you're not going to find somebody who said yes to Jesus fully, who saw Jesus really, and said no to him. You're not going to find anybody in Scripture who really saw Jesus and said no. You, you remember, we see Peter right here, that he, he had this moment where he saw Jesus really, and immediately said they dropped their nets and they followed him, and the rest is history. We know about Apostle Peter. We think about the Apostle Paul. That immediately he saw Jesus really for the first time. And once he saw him, his life could not be the same. He realized that something had to change. He realized that my life can't be what it used to be. Maybe you remember Zacchaeus. Remember him? Really short guy. And there was a song that we learned in kids' church about him that he climbed a sycamore tree. What Zacchaeus did is Zacchaeus actually was a chief tax collector. Which means essentially he was the chief defrauder, the chief liar, the chief manipulator in his town. 
He would steal from everybody. And Jesus was walking through his town one day. And as he was walking through the town, Zacchaeus heard about Jesus, had heard stories and said, you know what, I want to see what this guy's about. Walks, and since Zacchaeus is really short, he couldn't see above the crowd. So what Zacchaeus says is he runs before the crowd and he climbs the sycamore tree to get a better vantage point to see what's really going on with this Jesus guy. Jesus actually sees him. And once he sees Zacchaeus, Jesus says to him, hey, Zacchaeus, come down from the tree. I'm eating at your house tonight. Everybody who was following Jesus was like, man, he's not that dude. Like, if you really knew, like, this dude's the worst dude in our town. This dude has stolen from all of us. This guy is the worst. He is a liar. He's a manipulator. He is a bad guy. And Jesus wants to eat at his house. Zacchaeus comes down from the tree. And as soon as we see Jesus really encountering Zacchaeus, and Zacchaeus really encountering Jesus, what happens is that Zacchaeus actually says, not, Jesus didn't tell him to do this. Zacchaeus says, you know what? Everybody that I have stolen from, I'm going to give it back to them. And, I, and if I've defrauded anybody, I'm going to give back to them fourfold what I stole from them. There's a man who encountered Jesus and could not stay the same. You think about the Ethiopian eunuch. There's this man who uh, was traveling and the Philip, he, he sees him in the book of Acts. And when he sees him, this Ethiopian eunuch was traveling and, and Philip opens up the scriptures to this guy. And as he does this, his eyes are open. He sees Jesus for the first time in the scriptures. And all of a sudden he's like, man, my life has changed. What am I supposed to do now? Like, what do I have to do? And Philip was like, well, baptism's a thing. And the Ethiopian eunuch was like, great, let's go. There's a pond right there. Let's go get baptized right now. And Philip was like, cool, easiest salvation ever. He's like, great, let's do it. He goes and baptizes the guy immediately. The Ethiopian eunuch knew that something had to change as soon as he met Jesus. We don't see people who see Jesus really for the first time and say no, but we do see people who see Jesus and say no. We do. Do you remember the rich young ruler? There's this guy, we don't even get his name. And he sees Jesus. He actually approaches him. And as he approaches him, he says, Jesus, what must I do? And Jesus says, you must do this, this, and this. Rich young ruler says, I've already done that. Jesus is like, all right. Well, how about you sell all that you have, give it to the poor, and come and follow me? And the next thing we read about this rich young ruler is that he walks away sad because he had many possessions. We see somebody who saw Jesus and said no. Somebody who really saw him, even approached him, wanted something from him, counted the cost, and said no. What I see about this in Scripture is just because you've seen Jesus does not mean you've given him your yes. Just because you've been in church doesn't mean you've given Jesus your yes. Just because we've been around a bunch of Christians does not mean we've given Jesus our yes. Just because my family was raised this way doesn't mean we've given Jesus our yes. Because there are people who saw Jesus, counted the cost, and said no. Said, I see what you have to offer, Jesus, and I see what the world has to offer, and I see what following you is going to cost me, and I say no. And it's not that Jesus wanted this guy to be impoverished. Jesus wasn't trying to make this guy's life difficult on purpose. Jesus knew that his heart was tied to his possessions. 
And Jesus said, if you're holding on to those things, I can't hold your heart. Your heart is in the hands of somebody else. And if you're still holding it, or the world is still holding it, or that relationship is still holding it, or that job is still holding it, or that version of success is still holding it, I can't. Your heart is in somebody else's hands. And then we never find that rich young ruler coming back to Jesus because he counted the cost and said, no. What I take away from that story is that to grab on to one thing, you have to let go of another. Really simply. That to grab on to something, you have to let go of something else. When I was in uh, middle school, high school, we had uh, and still have this event in our youth group called Camp Collide. Camp Collide was this typical youth summer camp that you'd go away to a kind of dilapidated camp and you would go and you'd like spend the night and be with bugs and in the wilderness and the whole thing, right? And so as you're at this camp, one of the you experience God and we see him and it's great. And Pastor Stephen knows because we've gone there together a lot of times. And it was great. It's, it's like the experience, right? You, you're dirty. You don't shower for three days and you're like, yeah, I loved God though, right? And so you're going and you experience all this time, experience God in all these different sessions and worship and it's great. But one of my favorite things at this camp was that in the afternoon, you had all these activities that you could do that the camp provided. Now, the camp had zip lining, it had canoeing, it had archery, all these different types of things. But one year, the camp had a trapeze act that they could teach you. So the trapeze was literally this giant net that was over this concrete floor. And so they had these two bars that went up on the side and then these ropes that you could swing from, like straight up trapeze. So you grabbed onto a bar, grabbed onto a bar. They'd swing back and forth, catch each other, let go of the bar, do the whole thing. Me and my friends saw that and were like, oh, bet. Like, we're going to be professionals. So all three of my friends, a lot of people, but me and my three friends go, and we're seeing these guys, and you climb up, and you grab onto the bar, and you're supposed to let go, and then you do all these, like, tricks, and then once you let go of the bar, somebody else, like, they literally, you let go, they grab onto you midair, and then you start swinging back and forth. It was crazy. And I remember we were going on this thing they taught us, and so what I like to go is I like to say that there were two steps of faith required in this trapeze act. One was as you climbed up the ladder, what you would do is you would stand on the ledge, grab the bar, and you'd have to jump off and swing like a pendulum back and forth to get some momentum. And the second one was that you had to let go of the bar, and you had to let the other person grab onto you as you grabbed onto them. So what happened is that I went up first, and because I'm a legend, I did it on the first try. And so I did it, and it was perfect, and everybody was like, oh my gosh, it was great, right? And then I remember my other friend, he went up, and he did it on his first try. And he goes, he grabs the bar, he jumps off, swings back and forth, lets go, gets grabbed onto, does a flip, lands in the net. We both do it. Everybody's like, yo, this is so fun. But our third friend, he, and he, he'll remain nameless because he might be watching, and he... He climbs up on this bar, and he's standing on the ledge. And as he's standing on the ledge, he grabs the bar, and he's like shaking, like does not know what to do with himself. And he takes that first leap of faith, jumps down, and starts swinging back and forth, and then back and forth, and then back and forth, and then back and forth. And so we're all like, bro, let go. You're not supposed to let go, right? And so we're like criticizing him from the floor. And so he's slipping because he's been holding on too long. Sometimes you're holding on too long and you find yourself slipping. <laughs> and so what happens, he's holding on. 
And we're all saying, let go, let go. He cannot let go of this bar. And as he's approaching, he's done the first step and he just eventually ends up slipping. His grip loosens, he can't hold on any longer. He falls face first into the net. Me and my friends are cracking up laughing. He must've been going through puberty because he sounded like a girl up there and he's like, ah! And so we're like, he's just screaming back and forth, right? As soon as he gets down, we're all making fun. We're like, bro, you couldn't let go. Why couldn't you just let go? He's like, man, I was scared, the whole thing, right? And what I learned from that story looking back is I think that that's a lot of how we encounter and deal with God. Because of this, there's one step of faith that probably a lot of us have taken. We've gotten on the ledge and we've jumped and we've said, God, I give you my life. God, I'm going to heaven. God, I prayed the prayer. God, I went to the altar call. God, I did the thing. And we've taken that first step of faith. And we're swinging back and forth and back and forth. And, and, and some of us end up like my friend because what happened is that he was holding on to the bar because he thought that holding on to the bar was more secure than letting go of the bar. And as he was holding onto the bar, he realized that his grip started to get looser and he couldn't hold on anymore. And he thought that he was holding on to his safety and because he, he thought that the bar was safer than letting go. But what he didn't realize is that if he had actually let go of what he thought was safety, safety actually had the opportunity to grab on to him. He's swinging back and forth. And there's somebody more experienced, more faithful, more confident, who has, who, who has done this before, who has a proven track record on the other side. And he finds himself looking at them and realizing, if I let go, that means that I'm not in control anymore. And he can't let go of what he thinks is safest because he thinks he, he think his grip is tighter than the other. And actually, what he didn't understand is that if he let go, he got the opportunity not to just let his grip hold on, but to let somebody else's grip hold on to him. And some of us in this room need to realize that if you would let go of the bar, it's not just your strength holding on to God, but it's God's strength holding on to you. But as long as you're holding on to something, Jesus is saying, your hands are already full. To grab onto one thing, you have to let go of something else. And for you to let go of what you think is safety in your bank account, for you to let go of what you think is safety in that relationship, for you to let go of what you think is safety in your personality or your school or your accomplishments or how moral you are, for you to let go of these things and let safety grab onto you, you would realize that it's actually the safest thing you can do is to let go. What if the safest thing that you can do today is actually stop holding on? What if the safest thing you can do is let go? Because there's a God who has been holding on. There's a God who has a proven track record. There's a God who has more experience than you. And there's a God whose grip on you is way tighter than your grip on him. To let go of one thing, you have to let go. To grab onto one thing, you have to let go of another. Isn't this exactly what Jesus did? I mean, honestly, isn't this what Jesus did by leaving heaven and coming to earth? Letting go of his privilege in heaven and grabbing on to the world? 
Isn't this what Jesus did by going to the garden of Gethsemane while, while sweating drops of blood and yet saying, not my will, but yours be done? Isn't this what Jesus did when he set his face toward Jerusalem and knew that he was going to be punished by Pilate, knew that the people he came to save were going to crucify him, knew that he was going to be whipped, knew that he was going to be put on the cross, knew that he would be able to stand in front of Pilate and not say a thing? Isn't it true that your God actually let go of heaven so he could grab onto you? Yes, yes. And in that strength, not in ours, I'm not, I'm not, I'm not talking about a, a works-based faith of I need to try harder, I need to do more. No, can, you just, can we just for a moment think about the God who actually let go of heaven, let go of streets paved with gold, let go of perfect, let go of angels adoring him in eternity forever and ever, let go of his perfection, not laying he was not God, let go of his privilege, not of his person, and actually came to earth and said, I would rather have you than angels. Can we just acknowledge that for a minute? You see, there was a God who actually, in spite of my no to him, said yes to me. Some of us just need to say yes to God. As I close, if Stephen can come up, there's, a, there's an understanding that our yes to God, he can do so much more with than we can do. And, and some of us, our biggest issue in saying yes to God is we don't think that we're good enough. Why, why would God want my yes? Like, what, what does God really want with a simple yes from me? And let me tell you that God is not looking for experts. He's looking for people who are available. I'm telling you, Paul was not different than us. Paul was faithful. Paul saw Jesus. I'm telling you, Peter's not different than you. Peter was faithful. Peter saw Jesus. I'm telling you, there is a safety in letting go of what we've been holding on to to grab hold of what Jesus has had for us all along. And in that availability that you offer to God and say, I'm not sure if this is a lot. I'm not sure what you can do with what I have here. I don't seem like a very good vessel, but whatever I have is yours. I'm not sure what you're going to do with all of this, but whatever I have is yours. And some of us in this room really need to just almost write God a blank check that says, God, I don't know what's going to happen. Like, like, I have an idea of what this yes means. I know that there's a point that I'm going to have to say no to something. Unlike the rich young ruler, I know that there's something that's required of me to say yes to you and no to the world. But God, I don't know how much. Here, here's my, here's my blank check. God, you cash it. You take it. You do what you want with it. Because he can do so much more with your life than you can. He can do so much more with your life than you can. And in that availability of offering yourself to Christ, he'll, he'll use it. He'll be faithful to say yes to Jesus and saying no to the world. But always in response because Jesus first said yes to us. Will you pray with me? Father, we're so thankful for your yes. God, for your faithfulness. And Jesus, we're so thankful for your steadfastness and being obedient to the Father. To say yes time and time again 
And I feel like there's some people in this room right now who need to say yes to God for something. And I'm not just talking about salvation, although we're going to pray for that. I'm, I'm talking about that there are some people in this room who, who know God. And they're saying, God, I want to I stop saying yes to the world and I want to start saying yes to you. And if that's you, I want to just pray for you. I want to pray for the people in this room who know inside of their heart that there's a yes that God is pushing them to make. There's a yes in your spirit and you feel it right now, even now to say yes to something in God. And if that's you in this room, I just want you to raise your hand so I can pray for you. If that's you and you feel like you need to say yes to God in a special way, just raise your hand right now, right now, right now. Praise God, praise God, praise God, praise God. Lord, you see these hands. God, you see this act of faith. You see these hearts that have a desire to say yes to you. And Lord, we know that this is not an act of works so that no man can boast. But we know that faith is a gift from God. So God, I'm just asking for the gift of faith to fall in every hand that's raised that they would see Jesus, see the world and count the cost and say, I choose you, God. Because there's a God who has said yes to you for far longer than you've said no to him. God, we receive the gift of faith in this room. We receive your faithfulness. God, we choose to go in your strength.